0: Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it.
1: Good day Honor Harrington fans. Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington Podcast. This is Ro Wybera, and I am joined by my good friends, Jim Arrowood and J.P. Harvey. How are you two tonight?
2: Doing well.
1: Doing well here, too. Excited well? about
3: this book. Yeah.
1: Well, hopefully mm-hmm. by the end of this show, we'll be doing better than that. Well, it's pretty
3: good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, this is actually our second... Well, not counting the introduction, uh mini app, but this is our second episode, and we will be talking about the second book, The Honor of the Queen, uh this day. I, I know book one was a little bit more introductory, a lot of character introductions, getting the feet together. Book two, we get a little bit more into the flow of what to expect out of the honor verse, I think. I I know you guys. Well, I'll I'll put it this way: you'll understand why I only rated Basilisk Station a four. Uh, by the time we're done with this uh, this show, like I like I said at the end, having read it, the series before, foreknowledge of what was coming. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, um, looking forward to this, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Then let's get into it, Jim. I'm going to pass it over to you, and you can give us some summary.
2: Okay. From the back of the book, because we always must talk about what's on the back of the book, it says, Right woman, wrong place. It's hard to give peace a chance. It's hard to give peace a chance when the other side regards war as the necessary prelude to conquest and a sneak attack as the best means to that end. That's why the kingdom of Manticore needs allies against the so-called Republic of Haven. And the planet Grayson is just the right strategic place to make a very good ally indeed. But Her Majesty's Foreign Office had overlooked a minor cultural difference when they chose Honor Harrington to carry the flag. Women on the planet Grayson are without rank or rights. Honor's presence is an intolerable affront to every male on the planet. At first, Honor doesn't take it personally. Where she comes from, gender discrimination is barely a historical memory, right up there in significance with fear of the left-handed. But in time, such treatment she receives from the Graysonites does become wearing, and Honor would withdraw if she could. But Grayson's fratricidal sister planet attacks without warning, and she must stay and prevail—not just for honor's honor, but for her sovereigns, for the honor of the queen. Well, there it is. They do really good book liner notes. Yeah, it's not bad. It definitely fits. It's a good tease
1: mm-hmm. without giving it away.
2: No. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's very good.
3: Really gives nothing away, but. You kind of know what's coming. I love it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crafty writing.
1: Yep. So any technical information on the uh, on the book itself, its publication, history, and all yeah. those goodies?
3: Just a couple nuggets. Um, along with On Basilisk Station, The Honor of the Queen, which is book two in the series, was published in 1993 by ban By the way, uh, for the fans that want to go out there and dig around, you will find other references to story dates or publication dates i'm going with uh, what can be commonly found on places like amazon or goodreads but in this case i'll just mention it does appear that the book was completed in 1992 or maybe this one was 93 and the other one was 92 but we're going to run with the publication date so book one and book two are published in the same year this one is 422 pages And for reference, the story takes place approximately three years after the events that occurred in book one. And that's what I have for uh, special notes or side
1: notes. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, I'll say it, it can become tricky keeping track of the actual timelines. Some of the fan sites and other sites actually put a lot of work into trying to keep a listing of those timelines, in fact. So how about overall impressions? you guys (laughs) let's let jim go first
2: all right now this this is what i was hoping these books would be uh as you recall i was a little cool on basilisk station but there was so much action in this book there was never a dull moment i seriously read this book every spare minute I had and finished it in in just like three days or something like that. I couldn't put it down. Along with a story that moved along at a really good pace, the tidbits of information were presented as part of the story rather than as an info dump as it was in the first book. Uh, It was a great story running a full gamut of emotions. We lost some great characters. And the main character nearly lost her life. I felt bad for Honor, who had an awful lot to deal with, and how that all came together in the scene where she discovered the rape and torture of fellow Manticorian Navy personnel on a Blackbird Base. I was rooting for Honor to follow through with her summary execution <laughs> on that one. <laughs> but it, yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, I enjoyed the battle scenes, uh, which were epic in scope. Overall, a great, well-told story.
3: Okay, JP. I thought the military and diplomatic stuff was outstanding. The only thing that slowed me down from the action, meaning broke me away from reading, was I wanted to take a lot of notes for all the right reasons, and uh, finally had to make a conscious decision to curb myself a little bit was excited about so much of uh, what he wrote and how he wrote it. I thought on Basilisk Station set a high bar, Weber set a high bar uh, there and set the stage to deliver the series. And uh, this story seems to prove that that was what he was doing, was setting that stage. Uh, there was depth. All that abs- absolutely continued in this book, which uh, made, me, made me happy. He definitely did his homework and did it well enough that I had to go back and reread his bio at one point, because I thought certainly this guy did military service at some point along the way, but there really is nothing I could find that says he served at all. I became convinced quickly I must have missed that somehow. It appears I didn't. The guy is uh, phenomenal at getting the research done he needs to and then actually representing with real depth and honesty what the military culture and all is. So I, what he did here is laudable. Um, he brought not only depth to the military culture, but to military thought, the interplay and relationships between the military and uh, the diplomatic instruments of power, which I thought was neat. Uh, I may come back to, to that later, uh, that phrase, the instruments of power, or some listeners might have also heard instruments of national power. Here we're talking planetary or, uh, you know, system wide power with this kingdom and the Republic and different things. And he gave us, as you said, Jimmy gave us some just awesome combat scenes. Uh, The book also addresses the stereotype that military people are just dumb strongmen. That's, that's kind of my summation, my words. Um, But those, those thoughts are out there and they're interestingly out there oftentimes among the uh, political folks or the diplomatic folks. And I was stunned at how quickly and how well he took that on.
1: I know some of those people. I've known some of those people like that. Yeah.
3: Yes. You know, those people will tell you or act like, and we saw it in this book, in a fictional sense, military doesn't understand the larger operational or strategic interests and problems that they're involved with. The diplomatic objectives of the book were fueled by the need for Manicor's military to work with a culture that was significantly Different, had a, a significantly different worldview than the one held by the kingdom. That difference drove some real tensions between honor and her counterparts, as we heard in the, uh, the back of the book summary of what we're, you know, what the story is. But that became the fuel for some of that awesome discussion. We watched the struggle for the characters to find common ground in their military necessity that will overshadow the differences truly in a positive way, even though there's some really horrible things that are going on in the book. We even see what might be a very subtle use of some historical events from World War II and we may, you know, jump into this later, the enemy's treatment of prisoners of war, the war crimes that were referred to and the rape, uh, and perhaps uh, some geopolitical in our earthly sense allusions to the Korean War in terms of how kind of Haven's view of Masada and then how that might track. And, and this is not something I'm saying was the case. I'm saying it looks like it might be there. How China viewed North Korea during the Korean War as sort of an unruly little brother. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was just neat to see how, how Weber brings this stuff in. Unrelated to the story itself, and I will get back to this later, I had an issue with one of the aspects of the writing of An Aspect, of the writing in the book. But uh, I'll, I'll be specific about that as uh, probably as we draw toward the end of the show. I don't want that to diminish the just the awesomeness of the story. How about you, Raoul?
1: All right. Now that we've got some of the basic introductions out of the way, as I've said, as well as the initial big plot of the series, we can get a move on with telling the story. You know, a lot of folks don't realize this, though. A lot of the story in this book takes place in the conference room, if you really think about it. And not just when Honor's uh, slapping an arrogant, egotistical, uh, pointy headed academia across the room, but in legit conference room conversation. Uh, it, It just doesn't feel like it because the action's so intense that those breaks are really welcome. By the way, things stay like this probably until, oh, I'd say around book nine, book ten or so. It's an exhausting read, in a way. This book is an exhausting read, in a way. But I would say it's an exhausting read in a good way. Not only is it full of action, it's full of emotion. And it, I'm sorry if there's two or three spots that don't leave you misty-eyed in this book. Uh, you, you need to double-check your emotion, um, like <laughs> you. On top of all of that, these books will make you think. They will challenge you to think. A lot of people think this book is short, and it's not. It's just that the book reads so fast. Like the first book, or actually all of the Honor Harrington books, it's very heavy on characters. There's going to be a lot of characters mentioned in in our next section, and you just really can't get around that because there's so much character drive in the story. Some characters get developed Some don't, some will later. Many you'll see again, many don't. And quite frankly, anyone you see in the book is an open candidate to be killed, including Anna herself. At one point, he was going to have her die. He, He actually has gotten criticism from some quarters as far as the number of characters that show up in his story. And I don't have a problem with that because for me, that's real world. When you think of all the people that you interact with, especially if you're in the military or if you're in the business world or engineering world, that's the reality of it. You run into people in and out of your life constantly. They come, they go. Sometimes you don't see them for years. Sometimes you work with them for five years and never see them again in your life. And his books reflect that. For me, this really sets the tone of the Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse. So from there, I've ended on characters for a reason, because that's what we're going to go to next. <sighs> I think I'm going to keep a similar kind of pattern to what I've done before and mm-hmm. run down my l- the list of characters that I just want people to be aware of. Some of them I have a short comment or two of my own. I'm not going to make it too long, but I'm going to give you guys a chance to give any feedback or thoughts on where that character is and how they've changed. Honor Harrington first. Sure, She's... She's Honor. She is a much <laughs> deeper character. Yeah. The one thing I will say about her is where some of the insecurities are concerned, uh, just her personal insecurities, we see a bit where those come from in this. Yes. in this book. So any yeah. thoughts on how she's shifted?
2: I would say that she's probably... Uh, she was a lot less whiny in this book. Yeah, I agree. And, and more secure in herself and a much, much better character this time around.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, age, time passing matters. Three uh, years. I think
2: a promotion matters
3: because that's a vote of confidence and a new command and a, not just new command as in a new ship because she got that, but being now being a squadron commander with other ships, and I just, those are all things that help fuel the loss, I think, of some of that insecurity that she had in the last book.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, and the end of the last yes. book itself. That's going to cure a lot of those insecurities. Yeah. <laughs>
2: we we don't know what's transpired over these past three years very specifically, so yeah, she's grown a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. Nimitz. Uh, Jim, do you like Nimitz a little more yet?
2: <laughs> yeah, tree cat foo. Let me tell you, <laughs> there were some moves in there that I think JP could use. <laughs>
3: I I thought it was cool, by the way, that you know, I had, I had assumed based on the first book, David Weber uses language that talks pretty clearly about the link um, between the cat and the human that it adopts, and here it became clear. But that cat still apparently is very aware of what others are thinking. Uh, that might be too strong a word, but certainly feeling, you know, the cat can sense some bad stuff that was about to go down. Uh, so that locking that bond with the human that they're with doesn't overshadow their ability to see, see, see in quotes, right? See what mm-hmm. else is happening around them. Yeah, uh, that, that was pretty interesting.
2: Well, Nimitz is probably the character that experienced the most growth in this book. And yeah, as you say, that little sixth sense and, and knowing that something bad was getting ready to go down. And I, it kind of, uh, made the character a little more real. It wasn't just kind of hanging around, shedding all over her uniform and everything. <laughs> <laughs> You, you,
1: we have only just started the evolution of the tree cat's role in Honor's life and ah. actually in Manticorn's life. It's part of the long story.
2: Well, based on this, I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Allison Harrington.
2: Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Take it, Jim. She's a real smart ass, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> She needs to be in every single book. <laughs>
3: yes, JP. Oh, I agree. Yeah, she's I mean, not. She's
2: like she's like Loaxana Troy on steroids.
1: Oh, <laughs> heck yes! A <laughs> good way of describing her. <laughs> she'll she'll insult anybody. She sees it as her mission to personally offend. The entire Manticore aristocracy, <laughs> but we do see a lot of uh, both her and Alfred. We see her here. I I, I was almost uh, tempted to use uh to use her opening comment about uh, to the effect of uh, that's a nice piece of ass. Why aren't you chasing? Him? Why aren't you betting him uh, in the <laughs> beginning of the book? Yes, I, I mean that tells, that that defines the character halfway. Even-
3: Even honor is not immune or exempt from the offense.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? I I have a suggestion. Let's get some t-shirts made up that say, what would Allison say?
1: (laughs) Oh, gosh. If we ever do merch, that's going to be on my coffee cup.
2: (laughs) Of course, now we all know that, we're part of the TPE network. Uh, I suppose we could uh, talk to Hank about that. I mean, yep. he does have a store. Yes, he does. Yes, he so does. Get a picture of Allison. And what would Allison say? Let's be about that.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, keep in mind for all of that. She is one of the most brilliant geneticists in the the uh, known galaxy too, and we're going to well, see that side of her character as well as we come through. We're not going to hold that against her.
2: Yep. Um, no. Well, she's smart and uh, yeah. Go on. Yep.
1: Uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and take the flip side of it. Alfred Harrington honors dad.
2: Yeah. I, I don't know. I I think he. I kind of felt like he was kind of throwing in with Allison yeah. a little bit.
1: Let's let's face it. Anyone around Allison is going to be in the shadow. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. I, that's the word I was going to use. Was he's almost overshadowed by her, but not to the point of forgetting that he's
1: there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's sort of the rock of the relationship.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm looking forward to a little more character development mm-hmm. on Alfred.
1: We'll be seeing it, uh, and uh, fairly soon. Yep. As far as uh, how he deals with his wife, I I think the phrase mostly harmless, at least with respect to her excesses, would be the category they fall into.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair.
1: Yeah. Yep. Let's see. We've got a lot of characters to go through, so I'm going to keep a clip going. Uh, My namesake, though, he spells it in the French sense and I spell it in the Spanish sense. Mm -hmm. Raoul Corvissier.
2: Oh, well, first of all, I'm glad to know I was pronouncing it correctly uh, while I was reading. And what a great guy. Sir, good father and mentor for honor. Yeah, he, he got some character development, but not a whole lot. But the way he was written, you knew that this is somebody you would dearly love to know.
3: I love that he took that role, that fatherly role, up with Honor as a cadet, and here we are now. She's a captain, uh, an 06, Mm -hmm. not in the Navy. She'd be a colonel. So years later, their relationship endures, and, as we see in this book, Honor takes some positions that are maybe still being informed by insecurity or some of her own personal biases, and he doesn't just correct her and tell her to carry on. He... He le- gives her the freedom to still learn in a in a this is probably the worst word to use, but in a safe way a- as a senior officer. It's just it's really cool. He goes
1: back He he doesn't hesitate to go into teacher mode
3: with her. Nope. Yeah. you know, you don't stop learning. And that kind of comes through in his character as he deals with honor. I mean, it goes back to my statements about. David Weber doing mm-hmm. the homework that he really needed to do. Uh, he, he, this isn't surface stuff. This is really, really neat depth, oddly, yep. that uh, is lost in, in most, if I'll just, I'll just say almost all science fiction that's written like this, meaning these, um, you know, this uh, space opera and fleet mm-hmm. and battles and all that. And he yeah. is right in there describing with great uh, accuracy, I think. How these relationships in the military work
1: mm. mm-hmm. yeah and when, when he dies like Jim said there wasn't a lot of character development for him in fact there was more for uh, Yanikov, to be honest yeah but Covassier is presented as such a well fleshed out character from the outset it still hits you in the gut when he gets killed yeah was, even, uh... when, even with it off camera it's like oh god that's a sweaty eyeball moment
3: uh, when when that happened, mm-hmm. but and you know you talked about Yanikov being developed more. I think that's true, but we wouldn't have seen that. I don't know how else Weber could have developed Yanukov's character without Corvossier being there. Yeah, that I agree. The one the one character he disposed of is what allowed him to sh- give us this other character a lot better than he would have otherwise.
1: Mm-hmm. Not a lot to discuss yet, but Hamish Alexander, any thoughts? We see a little bit more of him this time. Yeah.
2: I didn't didn't impress me, I guess.
1: The reason I'm bringing him up is this is going to be another one of the slow developments.
3: Yeah. I, I think, you know, he's atmospheric right now. He's a part of the important noise. That sounds negative, right? But a part mm-hmm. of the important noise of the story. You, it's a good I way of phrasing it, actually. He's going to become you know, a heavy hitter one way or another at some point.
2: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Think of it this way. He is very, very close to Raul, and he's got a very deep interest in Harrington's career. So th- there's going to have to be someone to fill Admiral Covasseer's shoes. Right. But in this case, there's going to have to be a lot of character development. So something to look forward to. Okay. Alistair McKeon. All I can say right now is, my, how he's changed from the first book. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we might be watching his relationship to Honor reflect
1: Honor's relationship with Corvosier. That is a very good observation, sir.
2: Well, and not only that, Alistair has learned from Honor. And grown. Yeah. So
3: Her, her patience with him... I saw that in Corvossier's Patience with Honor.
1: hmm Yep. Yeah, in fact, that's a good way of putting it. Moving on. Mercedes Brigham. One of the two okay. Blackbird survivors.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Sad situation. Keep an eye on her. We are yeah, going to I see where a lot this of character this
3: character goes. Is, Yes. We will It would have been easy to kill her off, but she didn't die.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, Honestly, I think most authors would have taken the easy route and let her have died. Mei Ling, incidentally, I didn't bring her up because she's only going to be mentioned one other time. But uh, Mercedes is going to be an important character, one of the secondary characters throughout the series. And she's going to have to deal with some of these issues. Another character...
2: That's a good...
1: Ah, Yeah, Another character to... Weber's uh, not afraid. Yeah, he... Basically, wherever there is, he's not afraid to go there. Carolyn Wolcott is another one to watch in the the same context, by the way. Iris Babcock, I just have to mention her. She's our favorite Marine. Mm -hmm. And I've got to mention uh, Horace Harkness, uh, who is still attached to Scotty, because now I've got to mention Scotty Tormain. If you remember, he was this really green snotty in the first book. Right. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah. Thoughts on him? Uh he—he's—he's he's an important character. Yeah, and will continue to be.
3: He became a—he became for a moment, at least, honor's conscience.
1: That is a very good description of Scotty. In fact, when uh, when he when he is, I mean, almost literally in tears, trying to hold her back, it it was a powerful moment. It it really hits you in the fields.
2: Yeah, he's the one that stopped her from that summary execution.
1: Yep.
3: All the kids are growing up. What's going on here?
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Keep that kind of thought in mind as far as honor and the effect she has on those around her, because that is going to be something worth mentioning in future books.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, everybody's come a long way since that first book where she had zero. Nobody had any confidence in her at all. Yep. So she's she's, uh, come a long way.
1: And you can say the same thing with uh, Rafe Cardones and uh, and Andy hmm th- Those are other characters that they're secondary. They're obviously more mature. You've seen three years of passage, and they're all characters to keep a watch on th- that are going that you're going to get attached to as the series progresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's turn to some of the Graysons. Uh, Benjamin Mayhew the Ninth, the Protector of Grayson. Mm-hmm. And we might as well mention is two of, at least two of the, his three wives that we meet, Elaine and Catherine. Mm -hmm. But Benjamin in particular, ruler and name only, basically, Mm -hmm. trying to, educated at Harvard in the Solarian League and trying to bring his planet into the 41st century. Thoughts on Mayhew?
3: If If I'm remembering right, when he, he he is a ruler in name only, but technically has a has some real authority, and he chooses to exercise that a little bit, mm-hmm. and uh, that was kind of cool to see that he's not a coward.
1: I guess funny you phrase it that way. You 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 guys are really gonna like like an exile.
2: Okay, <laughs> Gesundheit. All right,
1: <laughs> Jared Mayhew is cousin.
2: No mm-hmm. comments. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, which is I, I'll take that as a not positive. Uh, b- basically, the wolf and sheep's clothing of Grayson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bernard Yanikov, I think we we mentioned him already with Admiral Corvoisier. Yeah, anything to add?
2: Two sides of the same coin. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah a he great he and
3: Corvus, Oh, sorry, Jim. Um, he was. He was who I had in mind along with Corvosier when I was talking about finding common ground between these yep. two very mm-hmm. different cultures based on military service they found a way to not just be proper colleagues or correct you know behave correctly they became friends
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: and that that's yeah. a that's a great way to break down or through certain barriers
2: yeah yeah I'm- It was developed so quickly, but thoroughly, how these two became friends. I mean, uh, this book, if nothing else, showed a lot of uh, genius in the writing.
1: Yeah, the character, just the the heart-to-heart conversation on the cultural differences, where the finding that, as you guys have said, using that common military background to bridge the culture's I do have to mention Wesley Matthews. That's another character to keep an eye on.
2: Shut up, Wesley.
1: No, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Nothing like that one.
2: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> Howard Clinkscales. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> what a name. Yeah, but you got to love him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, an even, he's in an even more conservative position than uh, Yanukov, by the way we don't see a whole lot of development, but we see the first nudgings of that when he throws his weight behind Mayhew in support. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see that again with Julius Hanks, with Reverend Hanks. You will like him. You will come to like this guy. Good. (laughs) So so you're saying, you're saying he's a tree cat. Is that what? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But trust me, you will come to like the guy.
2: Okay, good.
1: <laughs> Reginald Hausman. All I'm going to say is I've actually known people like him.
2: Oh, my gosh. I I can't stand this guy. I mean, he's one of those people who he he has power. He has clout. He has, you know, and, and he just pushes it in everybody's face. And, and, and you already know this, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's I not mean, discreet
3: about
1: it.
2: Yeah, and, and on top of what, it,
1: he's a blithering idiot.
2: Yeah, yeah. and when Honor smacked him upside the head, I was absolutely <laughs> beside myself just laughing like hell and wondering, how is she going to get out of this one?
1: <laughs> well, she doesn't quite. No. Thank God.
2: She does.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's wrapped up well enough at the end of the book Let's you know that it wasn't acceptable, however.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, mm-hmm. see, and that's a neat point because it isn't just forgotten. It comes back in the end. You know, you slapped a the diplomat. Future. Yeah, you slapped a nip- diplomat. Don't do that anymore, okay? Or we're going to put you in timeout. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, Yeah.
1: I I love the I love the way you guys are seeing things. Yeah. Alfredo U, commander Don't of
3: tell, Are you are, are you gonna tell us that we're gonna like him too?
1: Yes. Okay.
2: No. He was a commander of which?
1: He was the commander of uh, Thunder of God, which used to be the uh People's Navy uh Breslau. Yeah.
3: Uh. I'm not ready to like him yet, but okay, we'll see what happens.
2: Yeah, I remember the name, but I don't, I don't specifically remember. Mm-hmm.
1: Bear, bear in mind, uh, bear, bear in mind, you know, he ended up, that was the gentleman who, the the peep who ended up fighting his way off his ship and escaping, yes. gave, uh, actually the mantis and the peeps some heads up and ultimately defected. Okay. <laughs> now another pers- Havenite that we have to keep an eye on is Thomas Teisman. One of the four or five... He, right now, he's just a mere captain, but he's going to be one of the four or five most important Havenites we meet in the series. And Just an introduction. Any thoughts on his character at this early stage? Uh, I don't have any. Mm-hmm. No. Nope. The, the one thing you do get a hint of is that he's got a sense of honor. He, he's, got a, mm. he's got a sense of integrity. He was the one that let the manticorns know that hey you need to get down to blackbird i tried to stop it i couldn't do anything about this
2: yeah i just have a tough time keeping track of all these characters i guess i got to take better notes or something but
1: <laughs> they will grow with you over time and that's what that's one of the reasons why i'm spending so much you know i'm burning a lot of my uh, time here on these because yeah it's kind of pointing towards th- some of the other ones Matthew mm-hmm. Simmons, he's sort of the reflection of the Masadans, the commander of the enemy ship. Frankly, I, you, you can almost call him your stock. Well-written, but hate this guy, antagonist that you're glad to see blown up.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. I will go along with that.
1: Okay. Places we meet, we, we get a visit to Vulcan Station, which... Actually, I think the main purpose of that is it gets us a little introduced to uh, Sphinx. I'm not going to push a whole lot more time than that on there. Fearless, one of the few ships of hers that doesn't get destroyed. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Gets banged up a little, though. Gets banged up pretty good. (laughs) And then there's the two planets, Grayson and Masada. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on Grayson. Um, And and there's a lot you can say about Grayson. I'm not going to say a lot until we get to Flag and Exile because that okay. is really grace and focused but well obviously
2: uh, obviously misogynistic um in nature but except, it seems like it seems like they're willing to turn a corner here except when you look at the
1: climate uh, I mean the environmental situation is it really so much I mean the, Masada absolutely is Pure misogynism. Yeah. but mm-hmm. the Graysons—I don't know if misogynistic is the word I would call it as much mm. as be, because when you as you we, they don't have the rights; they're considered weaker. But there's clinical there's clinical reasons for that as far as the death rates concerned. Yeah, it, it, it's more of the, they, they, they had always practiced polygamy. We find out about that from the Church of Humanity Unchained. But you see, on the other hand, they take a turn with it as, okay, w- women have a very special place in our society, the way that they're elevated. And when you start seeing the conduct with how you, they treat women and things you just don't do or say in front of or around a woman, it's almost you know, Southern gentlemanly in, in some respects. So it's it's yeah. a weird it's a weird uh, confluence of things there.
2: Okay. <sighs> I
3: think we don't know, um well, I have no idea what Weber is drawing from or why, but you know, there there are hints of just like my comments about references potentially without ever saying it, China and North Korea or the Japanese treatment of prisoners in World War Two or things like that. There clearly Weber Is drawing from views he has of related things in the real world. I was hesitant to try and figure out, like, draw lines between the Graysons and anyone else, uh, or the Massadins and anyone else, because I feel like we're gonna get more. But there are, um, I mean, you know, you can, you can certainly Look at mm-hmm. Old Testament history or even some New yep. Testament history and go, I wonder if he drew this from this community, these people. But he didn't seem to fixate. Well, I didn't get the impression that he drew from whoever he drew from to make a statement about no. any of those folks in the real world. If that happens later, maybe it'll be obvious, but it's more like he uses the real, you know, the real world to color deeper. This universe he uses the real.
1: Brain. He uses oh, well, the real it is, world. It's our
3: universe. I shouldn't say it that way. But.
1: He he draws on the on these, I think, to yeah. address the actual questions. Some yeah, and, and the obvious parallels. The, the, the first thing you think of when you see uh, Grayson is that he drew from the Mormon, you know, from the Mormons, and you also you you'll also see a lot uh, as we get further in the books, a lot of Americana. If Maticore is the United Kingdom, or Great Britain at that point, th- there's definitely a lot of Americanism hidden, hit uh, buried in, uh, in Grayson.
3: In Grayson, I, yeah, that seems fair.
1: I think mm. there's a little bit more. When you talk about the Old Testament, you can't read about Masada and not see a connection to... The religion, not Islam itself, but the radicalization as far as the terrorism and actually any kind of radical. uh, There's some certainly some uh, Christian history that isn't that isn't exactly something for us to be proud of.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, I'm sure I read in one of the you know doing homework before we started the podcast, the whole podcast, um, reading up on Weber, and um, I. I'm sure I read in something that he's a he is a a minister of some sort so he's it doesn't a Methodist surprise lay pastor. if that's if I'm a, okay so that being the case it w- doesn't surprise me at all if he's going to build a deep and a wide world or a universe uh, that it would it would be surprising if it didn't he didn't bring religious elements into it and he does uh, like I said to me without looking for who he might be drawing from, I thought it added a cool depth to societies—not you know, just characters, mm-hmm. but whole you know, planets in this case, whole systems that hold a particular worldview. Phrase we would use, you know, I don't know, yep. what you call this a universe view or. So I, I think it's cool what he's done. Um, I'm, it'll be neat to see how this unfolds and if he continues bringing, or how he continues. Adding or bringing more depth into that aspect of
1: he will
3: Masada Grayson. But I was
1: I was about to say there will not be a whole lot more with Masada. There will be a few. There will be a few incidents, but this really, th- this book really is the heart of those two.
2: And well, it seemed it seemed like Manticore. Well, not Manticore, but Haven dismissed them, meaning Masad and Masada, just, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. dismissed them. Said, you know, hey, you guys are. There's no way we can deal with you. Goodbye. <laughs> yep. They're
3: they're you trying to use them as a pawn, but they don't they don't view them as equals or anything. They're they're toys to be rearranged or pieces on the chessboard to be rearranged.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, they're and they're too radical yeah. to deal yeah. with.
1: They're the too wing for yeah. the for even the or even the Havenites. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, the Manticorns do see the Graysons as people. They might get frustrated and want to wring their necks at points, but <laughs> yeah. but the and, and that respect, that mutual respect is going to continue to grow.
2: Yeah, yes, you can see that. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I okay, would, Jim? I would hope
3: that the Manticore Grayson thing is more than a book. Uh, because Weber did a great job of building is. a foundation for what ought to be an enduring relationship.
1: It is, but it's it's really not going to be a focal point of the series. Okay. Though the flip side, I, I'm also thinking ahead, Is like there's, there's going to be parts where you're going to say, hey, Raul, but I thought you said this wasn't going to be a focal point of the series anymore. I, it's like, no, I, <laughs> it, 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 I, did, I, yeah, I did say that, but I also said they're still important. So you, you will like, I think, the way things progress with them. Uh, I, I really, really would have loved to have uh, talked about the other analogy that, you know, the, that he draws on for Grayson. And I'm, I'm just going to mention it, but maybe people will want to write in. I also see a little bit of ancient Israel, you know the sons of Isaac, the sons of Ishmael in mm. the two cultures. And when you look at the way their conflict and how long it goes, the whole traveling to a promised land, the being cast out, you know, the diversion, the problem of needing sons, uh, just to keep their race and culture. Li- it, it would have been an interesting discussion, but we are already so far into this. Uh, I am not going to go there, and I'm going to pass it on to you, Jim, to talk about the story. Unless okay, anyone else so has so a place a thing that they want to bring up.
2: <laughs> I tell you what, I will just go ahead. I'll read through. Awesome. I've got several notes here i'll read through the notes i'll pause at the end of each section and we can uh, comment or don't have to mm-hmm. okay after the events of on basilisk station and an anti-piracy patrol the fearless puts in for refit at manticore while their honor receives orders to lead a small squadron on a diplomatic mission to grayson in an attempt to recruit the people of that planet to join Manticore in the coming conflict with Haven. Uh, The mission is led by Honor's mentor and friend, Admiral Raoul Corvoisier. Grayson is critical to Manticore because it will uh, plug a possible invasion route that could be exploited by the Havenites. Meanwhile, the Peeps, which I have recently learned is a pejorative term for the Havenites... Uh, are recruiting the help of Grayson's enemies on the planet Masada. Comments?
1: That's right on target. Summary right on target.
2: Okay. Uh, The diplomats are welcomed to Grayson by their Navy, but the welcome is soured because of a sexist philosophy held by the people of the planet. Honor decides to take three of the four Manticorian ships away on convoy duty. Admiral Corsovie tries to convince Honor to stay. While he doesn't agree with her, he sp- supports her perspective, and she leaves anyway. Corvosier meets with Admiral Yanikov of Grayson, and they begin working through their cultural differences and become friends. Corvosier learns about the rivalry between Grayson and Masada, who have been threatening each other with a nuclear exchange, and Masada vows to reclaim Grayson from the apostate. Uh, The negotiations are ended when the Masadans arrive in Grayson space and destroy several space stations. Admiral Corvoisier aboard the Madrigal joins Yanikov to confront the Masadans, but are badly outnumbered and outgunned by uh, the smaller ships, along with two very large ships from Masada both uh Corbusier and Yanukov are killed in the defeat
1: yep uh the, the one thing that I would add to this and partly because she's gonna have to deal with it she i think I think honors withdrawing she was both correct she was both right and wrong yeah um if she had I mean yeah taking her away did kind of get that look of running but on the flip side of it she was right. It did allow Kovac to, uh, start bridging the cultures, especially, you know, at least, especially initially with, uh, with, uh, Yannikov.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. This was a very sad, sad spot of the book. I mean, yeah. we've got, we've got these two characters that we really come to like, and they both get killed. Mm-hmm. I wondered At this point, exactly what is going to happen when Honor comes back? She is going to lose her mind.
3: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, and we and and we see that, you know, the remorse and second guessing herself. Yeah. Um, By the way, that that exchange between the uh, enemy ships and the friendly ships. I'll lump um, the Graysons and and the uh, Manticorans together um to me i saw a parallel to the first book when honor is in command of the first fearless and a uh, essentially a politician decides she's got a great tactical idea that's going to win big big wars and you recall mm-hmm. it worked for a minute but the enemy in that case it was Friendlies, you know, as an exercise, but the mm-hmm. enemy mm-hmm. will learn once the surprise happens how to deal with it. Um, whether they succeed or not is a different story. In this case, they succeeded, and then that created the tension between Honor and her crew, her new crew, uh, as they had their rear ends handed to them after an initial mm-hmm. success. Well, now here we have the um, Masadans with their their friends, the Havenites essentially ambushing folks with ships that are less capable, those lacks, and by putting them in a place where they shouldn't have even been and nobody knew they were there. And it worked really well for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) But now Honor is on the other side, though, right? She's got a squadron Mm -hmm. there. They are the these little enemy ships and, and two big ships are the undoing of the two admirals and their vessels but honor quickly figures it out and uh, addresses the problem so mm-hmm. uh, we're now watching her on the on the on the good side of that problem rather than being the the one that got told to put herself in an awkward position only to to lose in front of her crew and then have to try and create a good relationship out of a bad one so it's just interesting mm-hmm. to me to see that unfold with with honor now on the other side the side we're mm-hmm. rooting for
2: mm-hmm yep you know, I so, should add to that to this also that uh, those large Masadan ships uh, were bought from Haven, bought with the uh, quote marks. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, what's
1: what I find interesting in this section is the degree to which the Masadans, e- e- even though they're so outpower outgunning, we, we get that last loan man uh, destroyer,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: that, that ends up, you know, gets the people where well, the people going to, I, 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 love it. Oh, I almost I almost use it as one of my quotes, but I'm still going to, uh, still going to, uh, point it out when, uh, Alvarez is staying behind. So the rest of the, uh, grace and fleet can escape. Yeah. Basically tells them both of you won't make a damn bit of difference. What, to what happens to us. Alvarez says harshly, But if we hit him head on, Matthew saw his teeth bared even through his visor. Commodore, Mm -hmm. these assholes have never seen what a Manticorn destroyer can do. (laughs) (laughs) We don't really see that battle, but we hear enough about it. That little destroyer has the Masadans really shaken by how it was able to fight. It's like, yeah, they destroyed it, but uh, they were able to give them a pretty good pounding in the process. Yeah. Except, of course, if Alfredo, you was commanding, that probably wouldn't have happened, but,
2: <laughs>
1: you know, competent ship handling.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, should we move forward? Yeah. Okay. Honor and her ships return to Grayson and are attacked by small Masadan ships, in which only one of her ships is damaged. Honor learns of the defeat of the Grayson Navy and is grief-stricken and angry over the death of Corvosier. After strenuous negotiations, Honor convinces the Graysonites to allow her to take a major role in the defense of the planet. Traitorous Graysonites, who are loyal to Masada, attempt to assassinate the Grayson monarch. Honor goes into action to thwart the assassination and is severely injured in defense of the Grayson leader. As a result, attitudes towards women on Grayson are beginning to change. The Traitorous Grace Knights reveal there is a large base on Blackbird, a moon of a gas giant, where there are Manticorians being held, tortured, and raped by Masadans. Honor leads her ship to Blackbird Base, where she easily defeats the Masadans, who are accompanied by uh, by a Havenite ship, supposedly bought by Masada. A captured officer on Blackbird Base tells Honor that the Manticorians being held there are survivors of the Madrigal uh, which was destroyed earlier and how they are being treated Manticorian Marines invade the base and when Honor learns uh, what's been happening she seats out the base commander with the intention of killing him on the spot she is dissuaded by her own officers so I think we talked a little bit about that before.
3: I love that Honor is not the perfect officer.
2: No but the thing is, is, yeah, that's true. She is not the perfect officer, which is what what I would expect in the book, and that's that's a great reveal. But she's human, mm-hmm. for crying out loud, and uh, I I imagine that any officer would react similarly when finding out all of this stuff. I mean, your mentor has been killed, and you've got, survivors from from a a fellowship being mistreated badly on on some planet for no particular reason yeah Mm -hmm. and uh, I mean I think her her reaction to that was quite reasonable to be honest yep Um, and
3: in in fact one of my quotes sort of addresses what was happening with honor yeah the quotes all
1: yeah
2: I, I think if she had had more time, rather than having going right in with that knee-jerk reaction that she had, she would not have threatened to kill that person uh, the way she did. Right. I mean, she would have said, okay, now we have to go with due process. We have to make sure that this person is brought up for war crime charges and then shoot him.
1: Uh, that, yeah, that, that, that's kind of what uh, Mayhew, Commodore Mayhew said. Uh, yeah. ba- Basically, no, you can't kill, you know, it's like he's right, you can't kill him. But we can.
2: Yeah. Okay, ready to go forward. Yeah, Let's cool. go. Alright, the Havenites realize that Masada has no chance of following through with their bid to retake Grayson and make preparations to pull out. When the Masadans learn this, they seize a Havenite ship the Thunder of God, to launch their final fanatical attack on Grayson. Honor dispatches the Apollo to get reinforcements from Manticore. There is a pitched battle in which Fearless and Troubadour are outgunned and outclassed. Troubadour is destroyed and Fearless is severely damaged. When Thunder goes in for the kill, all looks lost until the Manticorean relief Arrives just in time. The cavalry comes over the hill, uh, <laughs> confusing the commander of the thunder and allowing Honor to take her final shot, winning the day. Okay, uh, tell you what. This this was an amazing scene. This entire battle thing was just incredible. And, yeah. And then when when she's there by herself. And sends off you know with the other ship and sends them off to go get reinforcements. It's like holy crap, this is it. end of the book, end of the series
1: <laughs> It, yeah it, it, and he he the way he wrote it it could have yeah uh, you you just didn't have it you did unless you of course you knew there were another thirty something books to go uh, right, right, but you weren't thinking about that when you were reading this,
2: no. No, I'm trying to. I, I'm in this as a pure, non non knowledgeable person. So I honestly didn't know what was going to happen. It just didn't look real good.
1: No, and and it was it wasn't good. I mean, the casualty the casualty uh, toll was intense.
2: Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of a lot of deaths.
1: And to be honest, it shouldn't have been much of a battle. And a lot of people, they, what they don't really, it's like, well, why did she, why was she going out on her own? Like, this? it's like, okay, she, her, those two ships were literally the only things standing between a nuclear bombardment of the planet as a whole. Yeah. So she really didn't have a lot of choice.
2: Yeah. The Masadans were poised to go in there and just finish Grayson.
1: Yeah. Um, it, it only takes one side to wage war.
2: Mm hmm. Well, do you have anything to add, JP?
3: Uh, the only thing I'll throw in is that Weber does a good job here of showing how the technology that you use to fight matters a lot, but experience is a game changer. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Honor, Honor's training and experience in training and then her experience in combat mattered a lot.
1: And her natural game defeating. Gets.
3: What should have been probably a superior uh, ship had a not superior crew. Uh-huh. The yeah. dialogue between honor and some of her crew shows that we're like basically they're not behaving the way they ought to be. And you know, are we flying against a computer at this point? What's going
1: on? And, uh, Who said wars are fought by people? Right.
3: It is. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. You just said it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was that. Weber did a great job of weaving the importance of experience in, not just having really cool weapons. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, and you finally, know, something, something. Oh, go to, ahead. I was going to say something else to keep in mind because I'm going to bring this up in and out. When they s- describe the maneuvers of the ships, I mean, for for example, when they're traveling in, in planet, they talk about turnover, right? When when they decel- start to decelerate,
2: mm-hmm.
1: keep in mind that means the Ship is literally flipping 180 degrees on its axis and facing the other way. Yeah. Uh, When when it talks about rolling for its broadside or turning on, I mean, these ships are spinning and flipping in three degrees of motion, like whirling dervishes. It's not your flat plane, Star Wars, Star Trek type of space battles.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: it'll make your eyes cross if you try to image the kind of maneuvers they're talking about in your head.
2: Well, it's a, it's a three-dimensional world. Yeah. You know, which is something that JP is very familiar with.
1: (laughs) Yep. And
2: inertia (laughs) matters. And me as an army guy, uh, we only had to worry about two dimensions. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So. All right, so bringing it to a close with Grayson Secure, the Manticoreans attack Masada, and most of the Havenites that are still on Masada defect to the Star Kingdom. Honor is showered with honors from both Grayson and Manticore. And and a
3: small warning, right? Small rebuke.
2: Yeah, and that little rebuke we (laughs) talked about earlier. Don't. Don't slap. Don't the underestimate diplomats. that
1: rebuke, though, because the second incident along those lines—I mean, he makes it clear that that something like that can—it can, doesn't matter how good you are, it can be a career ender. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. In reality, we see that.
1: And the one thing I will say is, yeah, she's heaped with honors from Grayson. They—they make her what's called—they make her a, a steadholder. You don't really know yet exactly what that means, no. and. I, I'm just going to leave it at that. We're going to find out that that is much more significant than anyone realizes at this point.
2: Oh,
3: yeah, that um, it's hinted at. Right. We don't know. It's details. hinted at. Yes. Um, that uh, that tied to the other overtures that we started to get when things got desperate. The uh, overtures we saw from Grayson. Take me back to I, for, I forget who said it. We were talking about set up or it might have been what was on the back of the book, actually, I think about it, that the views of women are changing on Grayson. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think that's certainly true. What this allowed to happen was the chance for people whose views had already changed, who are now in positions that they have real influence within that, the, the culture there to, to, come out in the open about it and that was bluntly done using all of the things that unfold the significant stuff that unfolded because of honor and then broadly the sacrifices of um manticore right the loss of an admiral the loss of these ships what they did for um grayson that the people whose views had already been changed or were well i think from the from from a you know what's the right word, a classic Grayson view. Mm -hmm. Uh, These people's views had already changed. They're now in a position where they can express that openly, and that fuels the continuing change of of others in the culture. But there clearly was a body of folks in leadership that they they already had a, they were more, in my mind, more than entertaining these different views, but they would never say it. Now there's an opportunity to... Come out and say it, and when they bestow their honors on Harrington, on Honor Harrington, that it shows that this this didn't just occur to these folks. They were they were looking for an opportunity to reform for some some of the views that they had.
1: Certainly for some of them, and even some of the I think the word you use, the traditional Grayson perspective, the the Grayson conservative perspective. There there were you know amongst the, the there were the some there that were. Certainly open-minded enough to yeah. honestly reappraise, you know, or at least begin reappraising their perspective. We we saw that to some degree with we we saw it a lot with Yannikov. Unfortunately, he passed away, though we'll see more Yannikovs as we go along. Certainly with uh with uh Matthews. Yeah. Clink scales is hanging to his conservatism, but he's being honest about where honor's concerned. It's more of a well, that's good for them. Is it, would it work in our... He's a work in progress. Yeah. And then Reverend Hanks. You he, he, he just start liking him more and more. At least you will.
2: Cool. All right. So... Maybe you kind
1: of segued into some of the themes. Yeah. Um, yeah,
2: I was just going to hand it off to I'll, JP. I'll
3: give the list, and then you guys throw in if you see anything I'm missing or something that doesn't belong in the list. But the themes that are that are here have to do with the responsibilities of command and the preparedness and obligation to potentially spend the lives of your men, men in the generic sense, men and women, your, your crew, your soldiers. Professional development, we talked about that, Corvossier and his relationship to Harrington and the latitude he gives her, and that harkens back to Harrington's same relationship, I think, with uh, McKeon. Uh, The profession of arms and what rests behind military leadership in terms of education and those sorts of things. It is a profession Mm -hmm. of arms. It's not just a band of dumb thugs. The instruments of power, I mentioned that earlier too. Heavy emphasis in here on the interplay between diplomatic, the diplomatic instrument of power and the military instrument of power. Um, For those that aren't familiar, there's a... A foundational construct that we abbreviate with dime. And the D is diplomatic, as we're talking about. The I is informational. M is military and E is economic. And you know, it's not a perfect construct, but it's a good point of departure when you talk about how nations attempt to influence uh, each other, allies, enemies, what have you. Uh, employing essentially broadly those those instruments: diplomacy, information, uh, military power, and then uh, economic
1: power. JP. So, uh uh-huh. The instruments of power philosophy is one of the grand themes of the series, and it's one of the core themes of the series. If you have a fondness for that type of that that uh, thought that kind of thought process, you're going to yeah. love these books.
3: Yep and it's not it's not unique to the military by the way you get nope. variations of that theme or that exact construct dime in if you go out and pursue a degree in international relations or foreign policy and all that that's a that construct is commonly accepted and i love that weber's using it to anchor story points to yeah
1: and, and, and uh, in fact that i think is where some of the criticism uh, people have of some of his later books because there's only so much you can escalate the military part of the story before it kind of gets old so yep. he starts to make shifts toward the diplomatic he starts to make yeah. shifts into the informational we're already seeing the economic uh, as it is but th- those other those other instruments of power take on their importance as well and
3: yeah. and I don't I didn't highlight economic in here because it so happens that the one annoying diplomat is an economist. But <laughs> he, he has he has a particularly strong view for For another show we can talk about. Yep. There's there's a there is a philosophical view that he represents that we can get into some other time. We will be. And,
1: it's going to be unavoidable to get into it. Yeah. And it, it is literally going to be unavoidable.
3: It'll come in time, but uh, the emphasis in this book was not economics. The stage is set there.
2: And we stayed. have a guy I who is an
3: economist who, frankly, was really more there to highlight a particular diplomatic approach. But, yeah, so economic will undoubtedly have to come into play because some of the stage setting was done. But not because, you know, our, our good friend who we'll all agree to hate was an economist. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting that that was his background as the character was built but he he really doesn't bring a lot of economics to bear other than a very sophomoric view of the role of what he would probably say is a is a premier role i think he would say it's the only one that matters but he shrouds it in diplomatic talk but I'm going to treat him as a diplomat, not as, an, not as a guy wielding or representing the economic He's an history.
1: academic theoretician. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep,
3: yep. And there were parts of the book where he was described rudely in terms like that. So uh, and the last thing really goes back to the professional development. And that is sort of what I think a very realistic, successful, and not so perfect military career looks like. And we're looking at that in Harrington— and I'm going to keep going back to it, at least until we're done today. We see it also in McKeon, but Harrington's the primary example. You know, you, there's no perfection here. Officers make mistakes. Good officers make mistakes. Commanders make mistakes. But you learn how to make good decisions in part by making bad ones. And we get to watch a very, I think, a realistic picture of what that looks like with, with Honor as a fi- fictional character.
2: It's what to you see, do
1: with your mistakes.
2: That point, JP, is really cool because you put it very well. Uh when I looked at the cover of these books, I got this impression of Honor Harrington being always right, flawless, Pollyanna, absolute, totally straightforward, and there's no way she'd ever make a mistake. And You know, here in the second book already, we found out that she is not perfect. She's human.
1: She's quite capable of screwing it in in spades. Yeah, and 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 she did.
2: So that's (laughs) kind of yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah.
1: And her mistakes get people killed, and she has to find ways of living with it.
2: Yeah. Well, yes. and you know, that's, that's, we've talked about this in the past, uh, on our other podcast too, you know, spending your assets, uh, in the form of, of human lives. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine anything that would be more difficult as an officer in the military.
1: Yeah.
3: So were there, were there any other themes or did, did that kind of capture
2: the biggies? I'm. I'm
1: happy. I, I think it. the the growth. All, the only thing that I could add is you you could expand the growth beyond just military, but include cultural and individual as well, because mm. it's certainly there. Every, everything you said in that respect can, applies to people individually, and it applies to people culturally. Yeah. Except for those yeah. that choose to crawl under the stone. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so how about plot? Why don't we talk about our favorite points of plot before we wrap up with some quotes and ratings?
1: Yeah. Uh, Jim, would you mind going first
2: on that? I'm going to go last,
1: usually, on this one, simply because I've read these books
2: in the past. Ah. All right. Well, for the briefest of moments, we get to meet Honor's parents at the Mm -hmm. beginning of the book, and it is so brief that one could just gloss over the acerbic sense of humor that Dr. Allison Chu Harrington uh, has. From this short encounter, I already know I like this character and hope we get to see a lot more of her. For me, she made me think of Lwaxana Troy from Star Trek, who is also a beloved character, but Dr. Harrington is even more crude. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, man. JP, what do you got?
3: <laughs> I had a hard time. With this, but I narrowed it to two, two brief ones. First is the common ground found through military service between two very different cultures. And, you know, we've highlighted that was really in our faces in a good way with Corbusier and Yanukov. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, actually eventually Harrington and, and her peers as we get toward the end of the book. Uh, the second one was how Harrington puts the, uh, our buddy, the economic advisor, Dr. Hausman in his place. Uh, again and however uses their exchanges to highlight the professional education and strategic awareness expected of a professional career military officer mm. you know that guy is always well i'm you know i'm no politician i'm just an economist and then he proceeds to lecture people as if he's a supreme politician or i'm not a military person but just an economist and then he lectures the military people and honor for the second time broadly shuts him down and puts him in his place and demonstrates she actually knows a lot more uh, about the strategic mm-hmm. view of life and problems than he appears to. But, uh, so those are my two those are my two favorites. How about
1: you, Raul? Okay, well, I th- for me there's two as well as far as the favorite. First is the comparison between their between cultures and the coming of terms between them. The the obvious case is the coming of terms, you know, between Grace and Amandacor but likewise with Grace and Masada. I, I like the way he contrasts the two, how they how they deal with the challenges of of growing, and I'll just say, trust me, we get a lot more of this as, especially the Grace and Amantacor side as the uh, series continues. For me, the second point that I really liked, and it comes to more of as a retrospect, is we start to see some development of some of the Havenite characters. Rather than just seeing them all bad, we start to see characters like Heisman and you, and I know in my notes I mentioned Ch- Shannon Foraker, but that's a few books down the road. Rather than just being generic villains, these aren't necessarily bad people. There, there were times, and even on my first reading, I remember this. There, there are times when you think, you know, someone like, Heisman he's quite a bit better of a person than some of the manticorns we've run into in this book. Our favorite Hausman being a good example of that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So th- 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 those are my those are eat. my two points. Jim, let's turn it over to you for now.
2: All right, so we got our favorite quotes. who would like to go first. Why don't you kick us off? All right I'll I'll start it out. So this is the scene where Honor dresses down Houseman, the diplomat. Oh, yeah. yeah. This man, this worm, was not going to throw away everything the Admiral had worked and, yes, died for. She leaned across the table towards him, meeting his eyes from less than a meter away, and her voice cut across the beginning of the next outburst like a scalpel. Shut your cowardly mouth, Mr. Houseman. The cold words were precisely, almost calmly enunciated, and he recoiled from them. His face went scarlet, then white, and contorted with outrage, but she continued with that same icy precision that made each word a flaying knife. You disgust me. Sir Anthony is entirely correct, and you know it. You just won't admit it because you don't have the guts to face it. I'll have your commission, Houseman gobbled. I have friends in high places, and I'll— Honor slapped him. She shouldn't have. She knew even as she swung that she'd step beyond the line, but she put all the strength of her sphinx-bred muscles into that backhand blow, and Nimitz's snarl was dark with shaded fury. The explosive crack— was like a breaking tree limb, and Houseman catapulted back as blood burst from his nostrils and pulped lips. A red haze clouded Honor's vision, and she heard Langtree say something urgent, but she didn't care. She grabbed the end of the heavy conference table and hurled it out of her way as she advanced on Houseman, and the bloody-mouthed diplomat's hand scrabbled fanatically at the floor, as he propelled himself away from her on the seat of his trousers. so I, I kind of like that scene. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's the scene that we, we've been talking about. Yeah. So, uh, JP, you want to go next?
3: Okay. couple for you. Uh, the first one, actually, both of them are going to deal with Commander Truman. But the uh, first one goes like this. The commander closed her eyes, trying to forget the exhausted pain she'd seen and honors one good eye. The pain had been there from the moment she learned of Admiral Corvosier's death, but it cut deeper now, weighed down by every death her squadron had paid, and might still be called upon to pay. Just as her exhaustion, anguish was the price a captain paid for the privilege of command. Civilians and too many junior officers saw only the courtesies and deferences the godlike powers bestowed upon the captain of a queen's ship, They never saw the other side of the coin, the responsibility to keep going because your people need you to, and the agony of knowing misjudgment or carelessness could kill far more than just yourself, or the infinitely worse agony of sentencing your own people to die because you had no choice, because it was their duty to risk their lives, and it was yours to take them into death's teeth with you or send them ahead, okay, and then In close proximity to that in the book was this. Commander Truman could imagine no higher calling than to command a queen ship, that there were times she hated the faceless masses she was sworn to protect because of what protecting them cost people like her crew, people like Honor Harrington. It wasn't patriotism or nobility or dedication that kept men and women on their feet when they wanted to die. Those things might have sent them into uniform, might even keep them there in times between, but when they knew what could happen, but it hadn't happened yet. But what kept them on their feet when there was no sane reason for hope were the bonds between them, loyalty to one another, the knowledge others depended on them even as they depended on those others, and sometimes, all too rarely, it came down to a single person. It was simply unthinkable to fail. Someone they knew would never quit on them, never leave them in the lurch. I thought those two quotes uh, captured that one uh, theme I mentioned very that well about. That second quote. Um, the the spending your, your the lives of your crew.
1: That second yeah. quote almost was going to be one of mine. And frankly, the only reason it didn't was because I knew JP had to pick that one. <laughs> uh, it, it I should be slower way.
3: to paste those in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it goes along with one of my, one of my uh, basic philosophies. And it's sort of a two-aspect. Uh, leadership is always personal, and loyalty is given to a person, not to a construct or philosophy. It, it's ultimately tied to some individual. And the leadership that comes, or business itself, is personal.
3: So what was your quote?
1: Okay, I actually I've got a couple of them here. I guess my first quote is meow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You didn't just say that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I couldn't resist that one, to be honest. <laughs> but my first quote, and this is the longer one, and it's sort of a two-parter. It's the bookend, the, the front bookend of uh, Jim's quote with regards to Hausman. Hausman's trying to one-up on her, okay? Quoting economic theory, quote, quoting Clausewitz, and her, she, she finally kind of has enough of it there. I'm afraid I can't quite agree with you, sir, she said at last, setting her glass down precisely and keeping her voice as pleasant as humanly possible. Your argument assumes all negotiators are reasonable first, and second, that they can always agree on what represents a reasonable compromise. But if history demonstrates one thing quite clearly, is that they aren't and they can't. If you can see the advantage of peaceful trade between these people, then surely it ought to be evident to them, but the record indicates that no one on either side has ever even discussed the possibility. That suggests a degree of hostility that makes economic self-interest immaterial, which in turn suggests that we consider rationalism may not play a particularly prominent part in their thinking. Even if it did, mistakes happen, Mr. Hausman. And that's where the people in uniform come in. And the argument and conversation goes on for a bit, and then she kind of ends it here. I wouldn't go quite that far, I understand. And a grin lit her face briefly. I've known quite a few military protectors, quote-unquote. And I'm sorry to say, all too few of them were pure-hearted. Her grin vanished. On the other hand, I'd have to point out that in any society in which the military is controlled by duly constituted civilian authorities, like ours, the ultimate responsibility has to lie with the civilian. This is where he was trying to blame the military for all the problems. Uh, The ultimate responsibility has to lie with the civilians who make policy between the wars. I don't mean to suggest that those civilians are stupid or incompetent, after all, she thought, one must be polite, or that the military gives them unfailingly good advice, but mutually contradictory national goals can present insoluble dilemmas, however much good faith there may be on both sides. And when one side doesn't negotiate in good faith, she shrugged. It was also Klauswitz who said, Politics is the womb in which war is developed, Mr. Hausman. And my own view is a bit simpler than that. War may represent the failure of diplomacy, but even the best diplomats operate on credit. Sooner or later, someone who's less reasonable than you are is going to call you, and if your military can't cover the IOUs, you lose. Yep. And I think in a lot of ways, she kind of summarizes a lot of JP's commentary uh, you know, and thoughts through this. Mm-hmm. I
3: had that highlighted I, as another potential quote with the comment <laughs> that, that, uh, honor just out diplomat diplomated the diplomat or out strategically <laughs> yep. thought the,
2: uh, yeah you know,
3: she's, mm-hmm. and she's the knucklehead that doesn't know any better actually shows. She's got a lot more, uh, wherewithal.
1: And one of my notes in, in my highlights on this was, okay. And this is coming from the woman who says she hates politics right. Hates diplomacy. She might hate it, but she's got, she, she seems to have a gift. Oh, and
3: her, her dislike isn't ignorant. She's, that's an informed dislike. <laughs>
1: that
2: <she holds>. yeah. <laughs> you know, military officers are very well educated people.
1: Yes, they are. Everyone that I have ever met. And I've met quite a few.
2: And well, in, in even stories, I mean, Omar Bradley, uh, George Patton, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. All these people were very well educated, and to assume that uh, just because someone has a uniform on means they're a knucklehead, you're making a mistake in underestimating people. Or some
1: ideologies that uh, some worldviews that think, okay, anyone in the military just wants to fight. That, yeah. That's got to be one of the highlights of ignorance. Yeah, I um, most... I, I've, I'm sorry, all of the military folks that i've known in my family and my friends uh frankly a fight is the last thing they want yeah because they, just they know the price mm-hmm.
2: yeah, just get home safe
1: yep okay my right, jp i agree
3: <laughs> <laughs> humbly i humbly agree
2: yes
1: you're one of the best examples of that opinion but like i said in that regard. Don't take this wrong, but you are far from the only one I've met who thinks, at least with the United States military, that seems to be the rule rather than the, than the exception.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my third quote, and the, uh, for me it's an important one, uh, explains Grayson's. These are the two admirals in that heart-to-heart discussion that uh, we've talked about. Yanukov kind of sums things up this way. Then understand this much, Admiral, please. If Captain Harrington is as outstanding an officer as you believe, as I believe, she invalidates all our concepts of womanhood, she means we're wrong, that our religion is wrong. She means we've spent nine centuries being wrong. I think that puts the Graysons in a lot of yeah. perspective right there.
2: He mm-hmm.
3: said, I think these guys have given this a lot of thought, already. It's not all of them, not, not Grayson society at large, but there were these leaders out there that were already prepared to shift their view. Yeah. And, and here he admits it.
1: Mm-hmm. It re- it really hurts seeing him cut off so quickly because boy, it it's like, what could he have brought to the rest of the story? So Jim, I'm going to pass this over to you to close us out.
2: Oh, well, I'm going to hand it off to JP because this is his caption. <laughs> Closing thoughts. And yeah.
3: Our okay. takeaways. Um. Well, here, here's mine. Um, th- this is going to be a happy and a not happy one. Yeah, I foreshadowed that when I said that there was a problem I had. Um, on the good side, incredible follow on to the first book. Uh, truly incredible. Uh, Weber packed an amazing for me. I thought packed an amazing amount of story and military education into four hundred pages, four hundred and twenty-two pages. Um, I'm still amazed at how well he did it. Uh, when I finished the book, I kind of wanted to go back to see if I could deconstruct how he jammed all that in there. Kind of like you said, Raul, right? Oh, people think it's a short book. Really, it's not. It just, it just goes. Honor was uh, severely injured in combat. And as a result, she has to endure two significant injuries that don't simply fade away. So again, there's some realism here. She's blinded in one eye and her speech is affected by the trauma causing her to lisp or or slur at times. Those real problems are wrapped up in some amount of disfiguration to her face. I love that Weber brings this very real aspect of what happens in combat into telling the story in this book, Uh, and that officers, commanders, senior people, whether they're enlisted or officer, aren't immune from damage and death. And, Raul, you have mentioned it. I'm glad you did that you know there's nobody that's bulletproof in this, that anybody can die, just like Corvosier and Yanikov. But, and it's related to this. So here's the problem I had with the writing in the book, not the story. Weber expertly communicated the damage to Harrington's face and the result it had on her vision and her speech. Then he reminds us about it over and over and over to the point that it annoyed me a lot. It seemed like he didn't believe anyone rem- would remember that Honor was injured. Uh, the constant uh, and un- unending references to her one good eye, or her, in some cases he shifted and say her one bad eye, and the constant reminders of her speech completely took me out of the story um, in a bad way. By the end of the book, I realized I was looking for the next time I'd be reminded that one or both of these things was missing, or was there, um, and I was missing the point of the story. Um, Sadly, I had to reread quite a bit of the last third of the book because of that distraction, which is what kept me from going back and reading the whole book again to look at how he jammed so much incredible story in there. I don't know how I'm going to make the assumption that I'm not the only person who's read this book that got kind of overwhelmed by these kinds of constant reminders. Almost like Weber thinks I'm I'm dumb and I'm just not going to remember that Honor had a bad eye and had a problem with her speech because of the amount of trauma. Um, I don't know how that wasn't addressed by an editor at some point in all of the years since the book was written. Because that's 93. If we use the publication date, we're now... In 2022. But, and, and I have not gone out on the fan sites, or I'm very careful about what I read when I go to fan sites because I, I this is my first time through all of these books and I don't want to crash into spoilers that will mess things up. So I just throw that out there. You know, I don't know if you guys were distracted by the volume of it. I am going to go back at some point and search. Uh, as best I can through the text and see if I can come up with a number of how often he referred to her bad eye or her one good eye or the lisp uh, that she had. Uh, it just was, it was a genuine and horrible distraction for me. And it's going to affect my rating. I'll just tell you that up front. The The one thing that I'll just assume maybe is that this was uh, Weber very early in what we now know as a massive story. Working out some of the bugs on how he wanted to tell the story. And maybe it was the result of him stretching new writer's legs. I'm, I'm not sure, but, uh, so there's that. So very strong and positive impressions of the story itself and very negative impressions about, um, his just constant reminding of, of the damage to Honor's face. So that's, that's that. And I don't know if we're supposed to drop, you want, want me to drop the, the rating now or, Discuss uh, your your uh, you guys'
1: thoughts. Your Let's your go ahead and wait. Let's and go ahead and we'll get the thoughts here. and then do the ratings. Okay. And, and the, okay. Just, just a quick summary. All
2: right.
1: I, so, I will say, without giving any, you know, to avoid. Sometimes Weber can seem. It seems like he gets fixated on something that's a little bit secondary. It, it kind of falls into the okay. No one's perfect category and that might have been what happened with the uh with with her injury there yeah right because, so and
2: uh, okay uh, go ahead no go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say my take on on that jp is i also noticed uh what you mentioned that there was an awful lot but i didn't uh it didn't annoy me mm-hmm I, I was aware of it, but I just kind of okay, well, all right. <laughs> so
3: And it it could be just one of those things that struck me. I mean, I'm totally willing to admit that, but man, did it did it distract. Yeah.
2: Okay. So yeah.
3: Well, how about you, Jim?
2: Me? Thoughts? Yeah. All right. I found this to be far more engaging and entertaining than Basilisk Station because of how the explanations were spoken by the characters. And there was a lot less info dump. Uh, One thing I'm appreciating is how Honor is coming alive as a character. And from the cover pictures, I was thinking that Honor was going to be some kind of idealistic, perfect, flawless, and always right type of character. And it's refreshing to see she's actually a flawed character who is good at using her wits, but she sometimes makes bad decisions uh one thing that i am detecting and i realize uh we're only two books into the series is a kind of form to the stories okay you know so we start out with every everything is new and pristine number 1 number 2 honor is sent out on a difficult mission 3 honor has to put some stuff shirt and self important official in his place yep number 4 honor has to struggle with her personal problems and Almost does something that will get her in huge trouble. Number five, the bad guys do something to initiate a space battle. Honor is outclassed and outgunned. Uh, Number six, during the battle, Fearless is nearly shot to hell, and Honor is going to make the ultimate sacrifice to win the day. Number seven, deus ex machina. Something happens to turn the tide, and Honor wins. Number eight, Honor is called on the carpet for what she did to the stuffed shirt. But all the great stuff she did overshadows her mistake, and she is showered with accolades. Uh, I would hate to see that every story fits into that form. Uh, I like a little unpredictability when I invest in a book. Uh, My takeaway is this story is, is a hero's journey, and honor is becoming more real to me as we see her flaws. My takeaway is be aware of your passions and don't let them overshadow reason at critical moments. Ooh, good stuff. Good stuff. So, so I'll pass it on to you, Raul, for yep. your closing thoughts.
1: Mine is much shorter. I'm going to comment on your uh, pattern. Okay. Um, there is the general pattern of, well, no, not necessarily new, sent out on a difficult mission. Struggling with personal as well as the other problems, ah, certainly there's the the, the Horatio Hornblower uh, death ride is certainly especially in the initial parts, but you do start to see some uh, shake up of a lot of that. Okay.
2: Well, you know, okay. It, it, let let me let me uh, use this analogy. All right. I know what the form of a Haydn symphony is going to be. Yeah. Okay. I know Great exactly. Great
1: analogy, actually.
2: I know exactly what is going to happen and when it's going to happen uh, as far as the order of events. What I don't know and what is the genius of that is how it is varied from time, from, from, one symphony to the next symphony
1: right I would have rather you made the comparison with Beethoven uh, just because of the amount of passion in the work. Um, well, the,
2: the problem with Beethoven is is he was he was an innovator. yeah Haydn was working within within a, an established structure, an established form. Beethoven was reinventing the symphonic it, he, form.
1: Yeah, but it, especially in his earlier stuff, he followed the symphonic form. Oh, so. his
2: first three symphonies are obviously classical. Uh huh. But you know, when you get to the fourth, uh, but and Haydn, fifth symphony,
1: he, he the, the Haydn was musical diarrhea.
2: Yeah. Anyway, this is not the <laughs> Beethoven versus Haydn podcast. This is the honor verse today, and yes. we're going to stop talking about music for now.
1: Uh, yeah, sorry, that's just a good analogy. Uh, I'll go ahead. My, one of the things, and I guess that's why I'm trying to avoid, uh, my takeaways is this is going to be one of the hardest segments of our show for me to write each time. Mm. I've read the, this particular book several times now, uh, in the context of my read thoughts as well, you know, from when they're first published, and these books, especially the first half of a hero's journey, kind of grow on me each time I read them. And it's amazing how fresh they still they, they, they still manage to remain. One thing that I definitely have to take away, and this is because I unlike JP, I do uh, bop around some of the sites and see, see some of the discussions. Uh, that has to be mentioned is Weber is not afraid to make hard social questions a part of his writing. If you're not willing to be challenged there, you probably should not be reading them. And one, one of the things that I've seen out in a lot of parts of the fandom is you, you, you'll see, especially if you've got a more progressive leaning, being a little more critical of him. Mm-hmm. They don't take into account that a big chunk of the series is co-written. He worked with Eric Flint. That, that's no. a discussion for further down the road. If you understand Harry uh, Eric Flint's uh, background, that's significant. But there, there's, I, I've often seen him accused of preaching, uh, especially very recently in the, in the more recent years. The thing is, he's not so much preaching. And what often is being criticized is the way he's using history: French Revolution, colonialism, Bolshevik Revolution, the Soviet Union. Uh, you can go back, you know, to older biblical or ancient historical references as well. The Napoleonic Wars, its history that he's using and building a uh, building a construct. And this I think, JP had hinted toward uh, earlier, a- and telling his story with a realistic approach to history. And you know, something to keep in mind uh, if because uh, some of the complaints I see currently this book was written in 90 or published in 94, written in 92 or 93. So anyone complaining about his writings in context of today's world, keep in mind, this was written 30 years ago <laughs> and you know, I'll leave. You
2: know it what's funny though? huh? The, what, what's funny to me is that how you say that, uh, if you're not ready to deal with the social implications and things like that, what David Weber does is the same thing as another, author that I very much admire does. That's David Gerald. He's he's always yeah. got some something in there. It's not obvious mm-hmm. that that until until it kind of reaches out and smacks you in the face and is like, oh, that's what he was talking about.
3: Like but, honor yeah. smacks diplomats.
2: Yeah, yeah <laughs> there you go. Yes. So yeah, I don't have any problem at all. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and wrap up with those ratings. Then, you
1: know, we keep popping Jim first. JP, I'm going to let you go first because you you were the one who was set whose comments you said would impact your rating
3: because of the controversy. Short and sweet. Here's how I broke it down. I I would give, even though it makes me nervous because we have so many books ahead of us, I would give this book a five based on the story, um, because of the amount of distraction and how part of the story was told that would bring it to a three. If I average them out, I'm going to give this book a four, which isn't a bad grade, but it would have been, I think it would have been a five if it wasn't for the amount that I was distracted by, by the way that parts of it were written. So I'm going to go That's with a fair. four, even though story-wise, this was a better book than, uh, than the first one. Okay. I, well, you guys, one of you guys go next. <laughs>
1: Well, I wasn't I didn't have the distractions uh having read them several times so that they they really didn't hit me and what did hit me was like it, like I said I've read this series thank God I have a Kindle because my paper copy of this book is rather tattered and it might not make it through another reading.
3: <laughs> so you didn't so, like it?
1: So, no, no, no. There's only one book I have ever, there is only one book I have ever physically thrown across the room before Uh, Stephen Donaldson's White Gold Wielder. And that's a different story for a different time. Okay. The story held its freshness so much. And I was able to forget so much of what I had already known having read through the series again. It had to get a five just because it's, that story still holds so
2: well after all these readings. Jim? Yeah. Best so for J- last. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, JP, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I do. Uh, giving it a four instead of a five, I I completely, but it, it didn't, uh, I guess it didn't annoy me as much. So I went ahead and gave the book a five. Oh, wow. So over. Overall, that gives us a rating of 4.67. According to Goodreads, a 4.22 with 27,298 ratings and reviews. And Goodreads definitely and tends to be Amazon March. gave it a 4.7 with uh, 2,396 ratings and reviews. Wow. So that so is... We're in the ballpark. We're we're oh, yeah we're we're well within the ballpark.
1: Goodreads tends to be a little bit harsher in the reviews, so yeah. Well I think that's yeah,
2: solid. I I think I think Goodreads has more in intelligence, more intelligent people in there than Amazon. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I I think I think you have people who are really invested in reading. Anyway, I gave it a five because I just thought it I thought it was very entertaining. Now, our next very exciting episode, we're going to be reading a book called The Short Victorious War, Honor Harrington number no. three by David Weber. And would the what's ironic about it is I've kind of been foreshadowed that this war is neither short nor victorious <laughs> necessarily.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that is a
2: historical quote. That's going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting thing. So
1: (laughs) remember what I said about his stories using history, that is a, uh, historical quote. So (laughs) I I, I suspect JP will letting us be letting us know a fact about the background of the title, that title.
2: Nah, well, good. So I guess that's it. We've done talk this one.
1: We have talked this one way out.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I, I I am amazed that this one went as long as it. Surprised that it went as long as it did. Don't be afraid to be brutal with the edit, key, Jim.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know everything. There's not going to be a whole lot to take out. Yeah, <laughs> we his books. We have really, talked about the book. We've stayed on subject.
1: Yeah, and, and he packs a lot into these books. So mm. it, it's it's it is so at it any rate is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I want to say thanks to Hank Davis for hosting our podcast on TPE Network.
1: And he's got a lot of great stuff. uh, Definitely check it out.
2: Yeah. So let's say good night. You go ahead, Raul.
1: Good night, everyone. It has been great and looking forward to next time.
2: Yeah, me too. Say good night, JP. Good night, JP. So long, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse Today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library, found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakhar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs.